Hello and uh, welcome to episode 10 of the Political Tipster. Now it's just me today, but uh, I'm sure we'll have some fun anyway. Uh, so today I wanted to talk about a particularly interesting election coming up, and it's the Italian presidential election. Uh, but uh, more than that, I also wanted to look at the, the EU's uh, role uh, that it's given itself in the past decade of intervening in uh, Italian democracy. And I just wanted to take a look about how uh, Italian has, how Italian democracy has really been transformed into a technocracy uh, under its uh, EU membership. And then I, I wanted to take a look at the, the challenges that uh, populism has. Uh, in Italy, it seemed as if it was uh, a country which was heading down the, the populist path and uh, the brakes have been um, very much uh, pressed down upon in the past uh, few years. And I just wanted to look at the challenges uh, ahead for populism. Uh, but first of all, uh, just a, a quick introduction. The Italian presidential election happens every seven years. So you, your tenure as president lasts seven years. And it's not actually a popular vote. It's, it's not, uh, it's not um, the common citizen who, who votes. It is solely all elected representatives. So we have 321 senators. 630 deputies in the House of Deputies and 58 regional representatives who are allowed to vote. So in total, there'll be 1,009 uh, voters in this election. Uh, in 2020, Italy had voted 70% in favour of reducing Parliament to 400 deputies and 200 senators uh, by referendum, but uh, this won't come into effect until 2023. So th this will be the last presidential election with um, with a higher number of uh, voters. And what's interesting as well is that uh, anyone over the age of 50 with Italian citizenship uh, is allowed to run. Uh, I think in the previous election, we had a, a male uh, porn star who presented himself um, and Three of the last four Italian presidents have been independents who have no affiliation with a political party. So really, yeah, um, anyone can stand, but it will always tend to be someone with um, a lot, a long political history, and um, or, or possible ju judiciary, or uh, who worked on the Constitutional Council. Uh, these ten, these people tend to get elected. Uh, also, a thing to note is that it is round voting. Um, so you you go to vote for your candidate, um, and in the first three rounds of voting, you need a two thirds majority, which would be about six hundred seventy votes, in order to win. If nobody has won by the fourth round, then it is a simple majority of 50% plus one, which is needed, so 505 votes. And 
the rounds keep continuing until there is an eventual winner. So in, in 1971, for example, Giovanni Leone was voted on the 23rd ballot. So it shows that uh, it could go on forever. Now, Italy is a parliamentary democracy and actually the president's role in previous history was, was seen as um, more ceremonial. So quite similar to the, the monarchy in England, but with possibly uh, a few more powers. Um, but some of the powers that it does have, which are important, are ratifying international treaties. So that includes uh, EU treaties, uh, nominating life senators, similar to lords, but in Italy, there's only five maximum. Uh, the president has to sign off on any dissolving of parliament and calling new elections. Uh, he is also the one who... Uh, uh, promulgating laws approved in Parliament, so just like the Queen, he has to sign off on, on any law. Um, he can actually ask uh, the Chamber for reconsider reconsideration of a bill. This almost never happens, uh, but it can happen. He can call referendums if you wish. Uh, another important role is he must approve uh, the PM the Prime Minister and uh, his cabinet members. He is the head of the armed forces. He can dissolve regional councils. Um, on a more technical role, he presides over the Superior Judicial Council in Italy. Uh, he also wields a lot of influence through technocratic structures, such as the Ministry of Economy and Finance the accounting office and the Bank of Italy. So, as I said, this is mostly a ceremonial role. Uh, he almost never uses the powers that he has. Um, but when there are, um, when the political system is incapable of de delivering viable solutions, uh, the president's role tends to expand um, and recently in Italy, we, we've seen that this has become a more regular occurrence. So the, the prime minister's role has continued to expand and um, extend uh, quite deeply into the Italian system, uh, which is important. Uh, or sorry, I should say that it makes this election far more important than it should be. Now, I wanted to move on to, as I said, talking about how the EU has continued to increase its role uh, in intervening in Italian democracy. And th this is really linked to the, the upcoming uh, presidential election and, and the candidates putting themselves up. Um, so Italy has had a troubled membership with the, the European Union, the, the euro has really been a membership of the Euro has particularly been a disaster for Italy, mostly to do with the fact that the currency, what people need to understand that the problem is, is that the Euro currency is too strong uh, for the Italian economy um, because when you're put into a, a unique 
currency, then you, you essentially become competitors uh, with those inside, quite ironically. So the Italian economy is just is not competitive enough uh, compared to the German economy. The German economy, uh, the, the Bundestag, is uh, actually much stronger than the, uh, the euro. So the, the euro is devalued uh, compared with the Bundestag, whereas the, the Italian economy is, uh, the euro is overvalued. And what that means is that for Italy, is that selling its own products um, becomes more expensive for, for foreign countries, but uh, foreign products become cheaper uh, and this is why, for example, the industry has crumbled in Italy and why it's thrived uh, in Germany. And also, as, as the currency is controlled by the European Central Bank, uh, the Italian government cannot change the, the, um, the interest rates or introduce slightly inflationary measures in order to counterbalance uh, this loss of competitiveness. Um, so Italy is in, in, in very bad financial uh, terms. And until 2009, actually, Italy was considered sort of the naughty student of the EU. Um, what I mean is that it had the highest uh, transposition of EU norms deficit, uh, which means essentially, so if people aren't too aware of how the EU works is um, you, a government may set out its budget. Uh, it's sort of like a student and a teacher where uh, the student will send his homework, which is the, the, the budget uh, to the teacher, which is the EU. And the EU will make corrections to your budget, national budget, and they will send back the corrections or recommendations as they call it. Uh, now, until about 2009, uh, Italy largely ignored a lot of these recommendations. So between uh, 1952 and 2009, uh, Italy failed to enact EU demands on about 389 occasions, which, is, which was the highest of any EU country. However, uh, in 2011, uh, there was an ECJ, ECJ, European Court of Justice, uh, ruling which, which stated that uh, failure to implement these recommendations was now, was now a punishable offence uh, with a fine equivalent to 0.2% uh, of a member state's GDP. So these are no longer recommendations. These are impositions, um, which make life much difficult for member states so essentially you have a choice between uh, accepting the eu's austerity measures or being hit with a rather hefty uh, fine so this has made things a lot more complicated for for italy um, and an, an example of this for example was uh, in march 2020 uh, this was when Italy was really heading into its first peak during the coronavirus uh, before it really spread to the rest of, of Europe. Uh, everyone was rather concerned. 
uh, death figures were, were rising rather quickly. And what did the EU do? It slapped the country with a 7.5 million euro fine uh, for having granted state aid funds to struggling Sardinian hotel uh, industry. So, you know, no, no mercy from the EU on that time. And uh, yeah. Um, but I just wanted to show how the, the president's role uh, was transformed in another way. He went from the guarantor of the constitution to the, the guarantor of the country's international obligations, uh, in particular those to, to EU treaties and uh, rules. Uh, and this has been a similar pattern in a lot of Europe, with membership of the EU has often seen an increase in powers for the executive branches of government at the detriment of parliament. Um, so like in, in France, for example, we have the, the Constitutional Council and the, the, the State Council. Um, they largely had um, arbitration um, roles. Uh, they were quite small roles in the French political system, but uh, those roles were changed uh, when EU treaties were introduced. Uh, the executive branch gave themselves uh, essentially new, a new role in defining EU treaties. So they, they couldn't change actually what was in the treaties, but they could try and decide how they were going to be implemented. And this was to the detriment of many parliaments. So we have essentially unelected um, technocracies getting more and more power in, uh, in, um, across Europe. Um, and yeah, and as I said, it was a sort of institutional transition from one form of democracy to another, uh, from a parliament, parliamentary regime to a de facto presidential regime in which the legislature performs a marginal role, really. Um, so this really began with the Eurozone crisis. If anyone can remember, um, of course, uh, Italy, Greece, um, these two countries in particular had really staggering debts and uh, the international markets were very rather worried um, that uh, that Italy's economy was going to cause the whole single currency to collapse. Uh, so the EU essentially gave the Italians an ultimatum where they wanted to uh, bail out the economy, but it would have to accept a very hefty uh, austerity package. And at the time, the Prime Minister was Silvio Berlusconi, and uh, he essentially refused the austerity package. Uh, he wanted to create uh, euro bonds in order to, to, to pay off the debt, um, but this wasn't accepted by the EU, and we had a sort of uh, international coup, which was uh, a plot which was 
negotiated behind the scenes between uh, Angela Merkel, Nicola Sarkozy, the Bank of Italy. Um, we also had uh, European Central Bank president at the time, Mario Draghi, and uh, Italian president uh, of the time, G Giorgio uh, Napolitano, I think it was. Uh, so they essentially um, had negotiations with several of the, the parties in parliament and uh, they persuaded them to uh, uh, topple the Berlusconi government and uh, Berlusconi was replaced with uh, an EU technocrat, uh, Mario Monti, who was a former EU commissioner um, who immediately enforced accepted the austerity package and uh, who was nominated by uh, the president uh, Napolitano. So we see already the president's role increasing. So there was really the, the Italian establishment needed, saw the need for a swift and efficient implementation of the kind of economic policies enforced by the EU, fiscal austerity, wage moderation, pro-market liberalizations, privatizations. Uh, etc. Um, and actually, quite recently, uh, uh, former US Treasury Secretary uh, Timothy Geithner uh, actually wrote in, uh, in his biography that uh, at the time of the Eurozone crisis, European officials approached uh, the US government with, with a scheme to stop all IMF loans to, to Italy. Uh, until Berlusconi was gone. So uh, it, it got to the point where uh, the US were, were being involved uh, in this scheme to, to remove Berlusconi. Uh, but this wasn't the final intervention. Uh, not only... Um, <clears throat> sorry. It, it wasn't... As I said, the only time when the, the European Central Bank showed unyielding political power. Uh, so they, they played a central role in removing Berlusconi, but they also uh, delayed responses to the European sovereign debt crisis from 2009 to 2012. Uh, there was the signing of Ireland's bailout program with the Troika in 2010. And uh, there was also the shutdown of the Greek banking system in 2015. So we see the European Central Bank has played uh, a very interventionist role in uh, several uh, EU member states' uh, democracies throughout. Um, and going back to Italy, in uh, 2018, so we, we had the election of uh, the Five Star Movement, which was a left-wing uh, populist party uh, who went into coalition with the Lega, who were the right-wing populist party. It's sort of like, say, um, um, George Galloway, um, George Galloway and Nigel Farage, yeah, would be uh, in coalition. Yeah, but that's the sort of coalition that happened um, and what was interesting was that uh, the coalition wanted to place 
Paolo Savannah as its economic minister. Uh, and Paolo Savannah had very Euro critical views. Um, and uh, the regime didn't like it. And President Mattarella, uh, who was, who was, Normally his job is just to sign off on government appointment. He actually vetoed uh, the appointment of Paolo Savano as economic minister, uh, simply because he was uh, a critic of uh, the euro. And uh, he was replaced with uh, someone who was much more in line with uh, the, the EU's uh, politics. So it shows whomever you vote for in Italy, it doesn't matter as you'll be sort of forced into the same politics uh, by the EU. Uh, and this government proposed a semi-radical reform plan, nothing uh, spectacular. They, they wanted to introduce a minimum wage and they wanted to lower the retirement age to 62. Um, and uh, this was rejected by the EU. Uh, so we have something called the Stability and Growth Pact. Uh, now, this has been in place since the Eurozone crisis. And its number one rule is that uh, the um, <coughs> state budget deficit is not allowed to rise higher than 3% of GDP. Now, uh, just like many people who argue for remain and reform or remain and rebel, uh, they said that Jeremy Corbyn's uh, program uh, manifesto would could have been implemented within the EU. It, this shows that it really couldn't because we have a left-wing populist government um, who actually uh, invited economists to uh, to forecast so that they were very careful they stayed within the rules and economists forecasted that they would raise the state budget deficit ever so slightly to 2.8 percent of gdp so it's still within the rules but because italy wasn't going in the right direction according to the eu and despite staying within the rules um the budget was rejected um and it, it just shows that these even sense, sensible centre-left uh, economics is, is just not allowed within uh, the neoliberal EU. Um, and since then, you know, from the start, it was just a disaster for the five-star movement. So uh, the junior coalition partner Salvini um, in around 2019 saw a comfortable lead in the polls and he took a huge gamble to withdraw his party and causing the government to collapse. Uh, he had hoped for snap elections, but uh, it all went wrong for him because uh, the Five Star Movement created a new coalition with the former Prime Minister Matteo Renzi, uh, whose new party, Italia Viva, um, went into coalition with him. Um, However, this is where the, the EU comes back into it. 
so they were they were able to contain the, the five star movement, left wing populism. Uh, but in January 2021, uh, the second uh, five star movement government collapses with Conte, its leader, um, losing the confidence of its junior coalition partners. Um, and everyone expected snap elections, but um, there was fear because at the time, uh, the two right wing populist parties, La Lega and um, Brothers in Italy, um, they were leading the polls. So the president, Mattarella, remember he has the power to call elections, refused to call them. And instead, again, we went back to a situation where we had some dodgy backdoor negotiations and uh, somehow um, Prime Minister uh, Conte, leader of the Five Star Movement, uh, was replaced with former European Central Bank President Mario Draghi, uh, who he himself had played a role in removing uh, Silvio Berlusconi. So you see again, intervening once again and and then uh, there's more and more evidence being coming out now that this technocratic coup was set in place uh, well before so now we we've seen that there were talks between uh, Matteo Renzi the former junior coalition partner um, who were uh, uh, Draghi and uh, President Mattarella were coordinating weeks before and they wanted to coordinate Renzi's resignation from the government uh, so that it would synchronize with Draghi having drummed up enough support. So essentially behind closed doors, they're sort of uh, blarneying uh, all of the other parties and eventually they find Draghi has his majority and then Renzi pulls the trigger, the government collapse and uh, the technocrat becomes the new prime minister. And it's just, yeah, something which is interesting. It, it's similar to uh, Corbyn's time in power uh, for Conte, the leader of the Five Star Movement is you know, he, he played the establishment's game and in the end he was punished for it. Um, he, he made alliances with, with mainstream parties that he, he shouldn't have had. Um, and uh, he, he went too close to the fire and burnt. And um, what's uh, slightly more worrying is now in, in Italy is we have... Um, uh, Mattarella, uh, the president, he's actually vocally supporting uh, every Draghi policy now. So he, he's not just uh, an arbitrator of the constitution. He's, he's playing an active role in government as a, as a support to government. So again, moving towards more of a de facto presidential system. And, and some of these policies have been horrendous, such as the vaccine passports in Italy are some of the some of the worst. Um, so I believe you need your booster vaccine in order to enter uh, 
almost every public uh, venue in so cafes, uh, bars, uh, museums, everywhere. And, and furthermore, uh, it's asked for in the workplace. So people who aren't vaccinated are, are currently losing their jobs. And uh, the cherry on the cake is that now vaccines have become mandatory for people over the age of 50. So those uh, over the age of 50 who do not get vaccinated will start to be hit with economic fines. Uh, so it, it really, uh, really, really out of control in, in, uh, in Italy. So this presidential election is important uh, primarily because uh, we have the next generation EU recovery funds uh, which are being implemented. And uh, as usual with the EU, nothing comes free. So there are so many fiscal strings uh, attached to these funds. For example, Germany, who is supposed to be the, the, the net benefiters of the EU, uh, were actually um, told they weren't going far enough in order to receive their support. So. Uh, the EU Commission asked Germany. Um, <clears> the <throat> EU Commission demanded that, that the country improve its reform program in order to receive the 24 billion euro financial support which it were it were due. Um, so Germany was called upon to reform its overly progressive tax system uh, to strengthen its financial sustainability of its pension system, which means essentially to lower pensions, uh, to open up the regulated professions, uh, and also to uh, abolish what they call the, uh, oh, I'm not even gonna bother to pronounce that, but the rules uh, on the joint income tax for married couples. All of these things Germany has been asked to uh, reform in order to receive it. 24 billion euro financial support. And in Italy, what we can suspect is that the EU will uh, demand reforms to its low productivity, uh, especially uh, reorganizing its, its micro business structure, uh, which uh, many economists believe is, is the, the problem at the heart of its low productivity. So um essentially the the president uh the establishment is looking for a, a president who will accept all of these reforms who will implement them and uh yeah in order to receive the next generation eu recovery funds uh so on paper they they look it looks great so 750 billion uh, euros promised but that's actually only 5% of the EU's GDP, which is a minuscule when you compare to the stimuli, um, which range between 15 and 25% of GDP, which is being pumped into New Zealand, Australia, Britain, uh, the US and, and Japan uh, by their respective governments. And furthermore, the, these loans are spread over six years. And if you take into account 
what Italy already contributes to the EU, essentially what the EU recovery fund is going to be is really a pitiful 4 billion euros a year of net funding. So whether it really be worth it to uh, implement all of these reforms in order to receive that money, I could argue no, but um, it's what people want. It's what the establishment want, I mean. And also with this, uh, this presidential election is, is very important for the establishment for another reason is because uh, next year, 2023, there'll be parliamentary elections. And if we look at the recent polls, so we have uh, three parties who are neck and neck. So the uh, party Democrat, the Democrat Party, the centre-left Liberal uh, Party uh, has 20%. And then we have the two right-wing populist parties, uh, Lega and Brothers of Italy, who are on 20 and 20 and 19% respectively. So together, they could potentially form a coalition. And we have the, uh, the five-star movement, which has dropped back to around 15%. So if there is to be a populist majority uh, within the parliament, then it's important for the, both the EU and the Italian, Italian elite of a president which will curtail any attempt of radical reform or disobedience to Brussels. Uh, and actually Draghi, Mario Draghi, the, the prime minister is, is throwing his, his uh, name in the hat, or his hat in the ring, sorry. And uh, he actually said when he, he signaled interest to run for the president, he said, we have created the conditions for the work to continue regardless of who is in government, which sort of says that, again, it's this real lack of room for manoeuvre when we're within, the, as, as Jean-Claude Jean -Claude Juncker once said, there is no democracy within the EU treaties. So Draghi is quite comfortable with leaving the government to become the president. Uh, he sees it as a more important role now because he believes that the programme he's put into place cannot be changed now and uh, Italy will go down the austerity route. So, yeah, it, Italian politics in a nutshell has really become an elitist affair. Um, we saw this in the, in the previous local elections. Um, country, the, the country had its lowest turnout ever, 55% uh, turnout which was 20% lower than the previous elections. And in some high income areas, uh, voter turnout as uh, uh, voter turnout was 30% higher than in low income neighborhoods. So really we see a huge gap, which is opening up between the, the elite and uh, the, the, the commoners. Um, and in, yeah, so Euroscepticism has, has increased greatly in Italy over 
probably the, the past five years or so. Um, after that uh, initial crisis, uh, the start of the pandemic, which I spoke about with Italy being hit with a, a huge fine for state aid funds, uh, there was a poll, uh, Techni agency poll, found that 49% of Italians were in favour of leaving the EU. Those numbers have stabilised again, um, but I'd say Italy is, is around the high 30s, early 40% mark, which means, uh, you know, it, it's uh, Euroscepticism is becoming very mainstream. And uh, one other point I wanted to, just to make um, before I look at the runners and riders of this election was just um, people seem to have forgotten uh, the sort of uh, summer of summer of love for left-wing uh, populism. Um, you know, it just seemed to come and it died almost as soon as it arrived. So uh, it began with uh, Syriza. Uh, in Greece, winning uh, during the, the Eurozone crisis. We had uh, then the Five Star Movement winning. Uh, we had Jeremy Corbyn. And in France, Jean-Luc Mélenchon came out of nowhere and he was, uh, I think, two points off reaching uh, uh, the second round. So he came third and two points off the, the second round. And um, Jeremy Corbyn, he, he took seats uh, off Theresa May initially on, a, on his left-wing populist platform. Um, and he was leading in the polls for a while, about five, six points until the, the disastrous, uh, disastrous uh, second referendum policy. So one of the reasons for the decline is COVID itself. So during times, these sorts of crises, there is a, a thirst for competence and sober government traits, which aren't often attributed to populists, which I must admit, but also culture war issues on which these parties normally thrive are, are placed on a temporary backseat. So uh, naturally, these parties will alter during times of crises. Um, what's interesting as well is in the last elections, uh, the local ones, although the Democrat Party came out on top, it still lost uh, over 120,000 votes compared to the previous election. Similar to the S uh, SPD um, in Germany, whereby it won the election, but it lost votes. Um, so this tells us that the 2018 five-star and Lega voters stayed at home rather than switching back to mainstream politics, because actually they believe their parties had betrayed their anti-establishment ethos, which is true that the five-star movement was bent all over the place in order to accept uh, EU rules. Uh, and this is similar to... 2017 National Front electorate in France, whereby in 2021 uh, regional elections they, they stayed at home, they, they didn't come out and vote in big numbers. Um, I think in France it was a shock 
turnout. And it's similar to what we're seeing now um, with 2019 Tory voters. Uh, so if you look at recent polling, uh, yes, Labour has a huge lead. But if you look at specifically 2019 Tory voters, 35% uh, say they won't, they don't know who to vote for now. And less than 10% are going back to Labour. So there's a false sense that we're returning to more mainstream centre politics. But actually, it's just the fact that the populists have now uh, returned to abstention rather than, yeah. Um, and the mistake that some of these candidates make, these left-wing populists, especially Corbyn and Jean-Luc Mélenchon, is that they'd built a coalition on uh, sort of your, no, your natural lefties, uh, sort of liberal, cosmopolitan, um, but also, yeah, uh, working class, industrial towns. Um, and unfortunately for those two, these candidates uh, decided to go down the liberal cosmopolitan route. And what people, what they hadn't realized is that these are just the vocal uh, minority. Um, so they, they went woke and they went broke. And what was interesting was that 40% of Jean-Luc Mélenchon voters said that Marine Le Pen would be their second choice. And this has been a mistake that people are making for a while is they're looking at they're looking at politics still in the old left-right divide. Mistake: uh, the populist left voters have more in common with the populist right than the liberal left. We saw this uh, with Brexit. We had a complete realignment of um, of British politics. So you had on one side you had the uh, cosmopolitan left cosmopolitan liberal left um, reuniting with the cosmopolitan uh, liberal right um, along with what I call the new elite, which is um, sort of big businesses, banks, um, etc. So those three were supporting Remain, um, they seem to be switching to Labour now. They are what I call the, the deconstructionist side. On the other side, we had uh, the former industrial towns, uh, working class former industrial towns who would traditionally vote Labour. Uh, they uh, got into a marriage with uh, the, the countryside or the, the home the home counties, um, typically right-wing, middle-class, who would vote Tory, uh, but also the old elite, the aristocrats, nobles, whatever. So they, they were what I call like those who support the nation-state, those who are anti-deconstructionist. They do not want to see the erasing of uh, their culture, tradition, their nation. We, we've had a political uh, realignment with Brexit and uh, uh, my advice to future populist parties on the left 
that they should know that they're they have much more in common with the populist right than they do with the liberal left. Uh, now, let's have a look at the candidates and the runners and riders of this election, uh, along with their odds, of course. So the favourite to become president is Mario Draghi himself, who's 8 to 11 odds on. So when Draghi arrived, the debt stood at about 160% of GDP, which is way beyond the level that triggered successive Greek bailouts, uh, which Draghi himself negotiated and Greece in the euro. So he's thus seen as a steady pair of hands, um, someone who can guide, um, who can guide Italy through times of crisis. Um, so you have to keep in mind, remember, that it's not, it's not the people who vote for the president. It's going to be the parliament. So steady pair of hands is something that people can support um, within the parliament. Um, however, there are many people who are sceptical uh, because um, currently we have a government of national unity. Almost every party. Uh, bar the Brothers of Italy, the, the populist right, uh, are inside this national unity and they don't believe that it could survive without Mario Draghi as Prime Minister. Um, so people are sceptical that he should become president, primarily because they want him to stay on as uh, Prime Minister. Um, People do not want to collapse and they do not want snap election. Um, and actually, one thing which is stopping this theory is the economic incentive for Italian MPs. Uh, because if they were to call a snap election, uh, they, will, they would lose their hefty annuity, their hefty lifelong pension. Um, so yeah, if you manage to serve out a term in Italy, uh, then, you know, you are rewarded financially, which doesn't sound great to me, um, which is why pe when people make a joke, uh, you know, when there's a lot of elections in the UK, they say it's like Italy. In Italy, there isn't actually that many elections. It's just, there's a lot of changes of government and it tends to be, as I've said, these dodgy backdoor deals. Yeah. Um, and another reason why Draghi could win is uh, the Five Star Movement, traditionally left-wing populist. If you'd asked them, would they vote for him in 2018? It would be an absolute no, but the party is being completely watered down and actually, its most radical members have left the party, uh, including Free, who joined the newly formed Italexit party. Uh, and, but, but actually, the leader, Conte, has said that uh, Draghi is solely needed as prime minister to ensure continuity of national recovery. So he does rely on the Five Star Movement support so it would be interesting to see whether they stick with him or not. 
another candidate uh, who is uh, I, just, you can't get rid of him, is Silvio Berlusconi. So he has a huge bone to pick with Mario Draghi. So he claims he's running for president because he, he promised his mother uh, that he would one day be the, the president of, of Italy. But deep down, I think this is purely to spite Mario Draghi. So Berlusconi is 17 to 2. Uh, so keeping in mind, he's 85 years old. And uh, if he were to serve out his term, he'd be leaving office at the ripe old age of 92. So his age is already a concern. In, in typical Berlusconi fashion, the, the bull in a china shop, he's already threatened to pull his, his party out of coalition um, if Draghi is to, to be elected president. So he's actually threatening collapse of government and instability, which the country really doesn't want at the moment. Um, another reason why he may not be seen well is that Draghi has been seen to improving Italy's image abroad. So recently signed a, a big treaty with uh, Emmanuel Macron and Berlusconi. He's had scandal after scandal. His famous bunga bunga parties with um, allegedly underage prostitutes. Um, his many um, his many accusations of bribery. Uh, he 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 would just um, for many people he would be destroying the uh, the image of Italy's global pre rep reputation. But uh, he is in a he is in a good position in the sense that uh, most of the right wing parties are ready to support him. So. Uh, Lega and the Brothers of Italy have both said they, they would support the Patriots. Um, and recent, yeah, he, he, he has the, so he, he would have the, the right wing majority within, within the parliament. And uh, of course, he, one thing as well, he, he has the natural gift of buying a lot of votes. He, he has a huge, he has a great talent for for blarneying many of his uh, political opponents. So he's certainly a dark horse to, to be reckoned with. Um, another suggestion which has been made is that Mattarella himself could stay on. Um, this is desperately wanted by the Democrat Party, which has now established itself as a sort of liberal centrist, Blairite party, we'll say. Um, but he's declined several times um, and he, yeah, he's declined several times, but there's also rumors that he could throw his hat in the ring, uh, become president, retire next year because of old age, he's, he's 80 now, and pass the baton on to Draghi, which is it's pretty desperate stuff uh, from the Italian Italian establishment, but as we've seen, anything is possible. Now, a dark horse, which I would highly recommend, is Marta Catabia. 
She's 23 to two, so very good price. Um, and she, she just fits the bill perfectly for me. So she was a judge on the Italian Constitutional Court for nine years. And she was actually the president of the Constitutional Court uh, for a year or two. So she was the first woman to hold that office. Um, and despite having no party affiliation, she was recently appointed justice minister um, in the Draghi government. So she, she has had a bit of experience in, in government. Uh, she's sort of, yeah, Draghi's right-hand woman for the moment. And she, she has potential to attract agreement across the political spectrum. So uh, the leader, Conte, of the, the Five Star Movement and many within that party have actually called on the country to elect first female prime, uh, first female president, very sort of typical identity politics uh, from the left here. So I think she would be appreciated by most of the, the left of center uh, for social reasons. You know, she's a woman, she's very liberal in her social views. So she, she would um, tick the right boxes for the center left but also for her economic um, position, you know, more pro-liberalization of markets, um, um, uh, lowering taxes. Uh, she she's, should also be seen favorably amongst the, the center-right. Um, and she, she's really a textbook Euro-technocrat and She's an expert in EU law, which is sort of what the role of the president has now become, interpreting EU law. So I, th I think she's really a strong outsider. Uh, so definitely one to look out for. Then we have three smaller candidates. Uh, so we have uh, Elisabetta Castelletti's who's 10 to 1 to, to become president. Again, she's got the advantage of being a female, uh, but also the president of the Senate, so well-respected. Uh, but uh, she's also a member of Berlusconi's party. So the, the tradition is that the party nominates candidates, but of course, Berlusconi, being Berlusconi, jumped the gun and just announced himself. Um, so whether she, she may present herself in the first round, um, but if she were to receive fewer votes than Berlusconi, then she would pull out uh, after the first ballot. So even if she does present herself, I can't see her getting further than the first or second round. So not for me. Then we have Pierre Fernandino Cassini, who's 16 to 1. He's a member of the Democrat Party. And the reason why he could be an outsider is because he was a former member of the right wing, co the center right coalition before moving over to the center left coalition. He's got good relations with both the Democrat Party and Orza Italia, who was Berlusconi's center right party. Um, 
but in order to win, you would have to rely on Berlusconi pulling out before round four uh, in order to get Forza Italia's votes, which is very unlikely uh, because Berlusconi will fight right to the end, no matter what scores he's receiving. Um, and he himself has also stated that there's only a one in 2,000 chance that he will stand. So very unlikely. Uh, and the last option, who's real outsider, Paolo Gentiloni, who is 32 to 1. He was former prime minister and finance minister, so well respected. Uh, he's currently an EU commissioner and he has good relations with Draghi and Mattarelli. That, that could prove uh, it's. Uh, his key to power. However, he's got a lot shaky relations with a lot of parliamentarians because of uh, political history, especially Matteo Renzi. So he would not have the support of his party. Uh, now, I just wanted to look at the number of electors per party and just have a look at the roadmap to power for the for the main candidates so those who are electing so the five-star movement has the the most electors 236 lega the right-wing populist 212 the party democrat center left 153 forza italia berlusconi center right party 139 electors uh the other hard right populist party brothers of italy have 64 Italia Viva, Matteo Renzi's sort of centrist liberal party have 44. Coraggio Italia, which is another centre-right party, have 32. Uh, Free and Equal, who are another centre-left party, have 18. And then we have 96 uh, electors who are either independents or, or from minor parties. So let's try and build a roadmap and see who could come out on top. So remember, for the first three rounds, you need 673 votes in order to win. Uh, but from the fourth round onwards, it's just 505 votes. So Draghi's roadmap would, he would need the support of the Five Star Movement, uh, the Democrat Party, uh, Viva Italia, and uh, free and equal. So it would be a sort of, yeah, center-left uh, coalition. But that only gets him 451 votes. Uh, that would mean he would, rely, he would have to rely on either some of the right-wing parties or uh, some of the independents and minor parties to get him over the line. But it's similar numbers for Berlusconi. So Berlusconi's roadmap would be Lega, uh, Forza Italia, his own party, uh, the Brothers of Italy, and Coraggio. So that would be a sort of centre-right coalition. Uh, and that would only get him uh, 447 votes. So again, he would have to rely on either taking some of the centre-left votes or as well relying on independents or 
very small minor parties to get him over the line. So it'll be interesting because, um, yeah, it could be decided by small parties with only one or two uh, candidates within the uh, within the parliament. So but it'll be very interesting. It will be uh, um, it'll be a very uh, tight race, but it. What changes everything is the fact that it's a secret ballot. So uh, the votes, unlike in, in the UK, when you vote for a law, uh, it, it stated what an MP has voted for, his voting record. This is a completely secret ballot. So there may be people on the centre right who should be voting or who may publicly say they're voting Berlusconi, who will actually be one thinking about their pensions, who thinking about stability, and they may vote for Draghi secretly in order to avoid uh, a collapsing government. Um, but also, this is why I, I would strongly tip um, Marte Cartabia as uh, as a good bet because the odds are so high. Uh, she has a similar roadmap to Draghi. And uh, in the first round, uh, it's unsure what could happen because uh, people don't tend to announce the candidacy in Italy for the presidential race. It's sort of uh, it's on the day thing. Uh, I think she's a dark horse with the secret ballot. People may think that the most stable option is to keep Draghi as the prime minister and have Cartabia as the president. Berlusconi is really the wild card. Um, she fits the role perfectly, as I said, really EU technocrat. Uh, she would she would implement everything Brussels tells her to do. Uh, Draghi would stay in. The national unity government would stay in place. Um, um, Berlusconi would try and pull his party out, but I don't think he has enough uh, seats in order to make the national unity government collapse. So I, I would say I, I would definitely tip. Uh, Cartabia to uh, to become the next president of Italy and the first female president of Italy. Uh, so I, I hope I haven't been uh, dragging this on for too long. Uh, it's something that's uh, passioned me a lot. Um, it's it's really sad to see the, the technocratic coup of the EU uh, completed essentially with this election unless we have the Berlusconi miracle. Uh, so next time uh, I'll have a guest back on the show. Um, I'm not sure which is the ne next election. Um, I'll have to have a look. But uh, yeah, I hope you've enjoyed this uh, podcast. Uh, please, by all means, criticize, uh, comment, um, share your views and uh, join in the debate. Thank you very much and uh, see you soon.